It's another dawn walk and another early start for the podcast today. And it's a lovely, bright, clear, late autumn morning with a stiff breeze. And since we set off from the car park at Black Hill, we've encountered an absolute feast of birds. There's been red wings, field fares, missile thrushes, blackbirds, linnets, lesser red poles, all waking up from their roosts, either in the gorse or the Scots pine. And just this second, lifting off from the tops of a clump of pine trees, we've had a flock of crossbills, which are first for the podcast. We've not seen those or heard those yet. Their whole being is about cracking into the cones of the Scots pine and getting to their seeds with their special crossbills. And we're overlooking Wren's Warren, the other side of which is the Enchanted Place, home of Winnie the Pooh. Yes, because we've got to the sixth episode of this podcast with scarcely a mention of Winnie the Pooh. So for our final episode of the year, I talked to Anne Thwaite, the biographer of A.A. Milne, the author of the Pooh stories, who knew Christopher Milne, more popularly known as Christopher Robin. Back to where we're standing at the moment... Right in front of us are smouldering fires, the remains of bigger bonfires that the rangers and their contractors were using to burn the gorse that had been cut and cleared for maintaining the open heathland. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to try and keep the special habitats that we're so used to seeing. And the subject of deer is one that definitely needs addressing. And today, oh, there's a massive flight of wood pigeons heading over. These are also, we see them all year round, but these are also birds that migrate here in their tens and tens of thousands. So uh, they're both resident and they come over from Scandinavia? Both resident and migratory, yeah. And back to the deer, there's almost nowhere on the forest that you can't pick up the signs of their presence. When you head into the woodlands and drop your head down a little bit, you'll see all the way through from one side to the other. That's their browse line where they've been nibbling at the low branches of the trees or any new trees that are popping up. You can see signs of their droppings and their slots of their hooves in the soft mud. Uh, And if you're lucky in, in late winter, early spring, even find the odd shed antler. But these animals build up in number. And so the conversation, not always a comfortable one, about management has to come in. And on that note... On that note... Thank you, Tom. We have Charlie Harwood here. And Charlie, I'm going to ask you how you describe yourself, because even your term could be controversial of how Absolutely, you... yeah. Hi there. So I refer to myself as a deer manager. Deer but... manager, because a deer stalker or a deer marksman so... or a deer colour, they all have a slightly different... Twang. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> what we do is very much not just turn up, go out with a rifle and, and, and look for deer. There's a whole process behind the scenes. Let's talk about why, before we go into how. Absolutely. (laughs) What is the problem with so many deer? There's a lot of fallow around the Ashdown Forest and surrounding areas, and they'll run through habitats in big herds, sometimes of up to sort of 55, 60. You can imagine the sort of damage that they would then bring in terms of ground flora, natural regeneration, as you mentioned earlier on, with the clearance that the forest team are doing, there's going to be a lot of new regeneration there. They'll be very quick to jump on that before it even has chance to get somewhere. It's a difficult balance though, isn't it? Because Ashdown Forest is a heath, so some of the woodland we don't want to regenerate and and some of the woodland we do. No, absolutely. And I think that's an important question because there's no way that we want to 
say goodbye to fallow. We want to balance. We want fallow here. They're, they're great for, for the habitat as well, but it's just the sheer number that we have need to be managed. I read that in a recent drone survey, they said that in Ashdown Forest and the surrounding farmland, there's over 2,000 yep. deer. And when you compare it with Scotland, where they're trying to bring on the natural regeneration, yep. we've got three times more deer per square kilometre than we would like. Absolutely, yeah. So the survey suggested we've got 14.2 deer per square kilometre. Scotland have given an indication that a healthy herd should be around five per square kilometre. So at the minute we are, yeah, three times more than, than where we want to end up. So are you doing it in pairs? Yeah, we do, yeah. So typically it would be safer for us to go out as a pair. There are gents that go out on their own. Is it only uh, but, gents? Uh, no, we do have a lady as well on the team, yeah. So if you were to fall and hurt yourself, it's always good to have that second with you. We're doing a tough job in tough terrain. So could you describe a typical deer culling outing? Yes, absolutely. So does are in culling season from the 1st of November until the end of March. And bucks, i.e. males, are in culling season from the 1st of August until the end of April. So this is fallow. We are aiming for around 150 does a season. Does take up a lot of the population. In some cases, it's 70% heavy does, 30% bucks, males. We're very much looking for the health of a herd. It's not necessarily we just take the young. It's not we just take the old or the mature. It's a mixed balance between all three. So it's not just the frail and, and, and so on? No, absolutely no. not. So when it comes to the actual cull, how are you going about it in terms of as humanely as possible and the distance from yep. the deer itself? Yeah, sure. So it would be very much up at the crack of dawn. Try and get out on the ground for 20 minutes to half an hour before first light. I would have all my essentials on me, so binoculars. I've got a thermal imager. So we would find the herd, use our binoculars to, to get into a safe location. You know, we're looking for a good backstop, a clear picture of sight. We're not shooting into thick gorse. Backstop, so we, can you just explain so what you mean by backstop? backstop? What I mean is we're shooting into a, an uprising bank, not onto a, a, a brow line. We need to make sure that the round or the bullet has a good stop to it. In no cases would we even anticipate pulling the rifle out of the bag if there were walkers, dog walkers, local in sight. It's so, so well organised. It's such a well-oiled machine and we've got thousands of pounds worth of kit that helps us make all the right decisions and, and the safest decisions. Then it would be a case of stalking into the deer there's a lot of time and skill involved in, in getting into a safe distance. Taking the shot on the animal that you choose, then we have to perform the extraction side of that animal. The terrain is so difficult here. We use machinery, buggies, potentially quad bikes. In some cases, tractors, and a lot of the time, our own just beings to, to extract that animal to the larder, which is where the real work begins. So the larder. This is venison. This is going to Absolutely. be eaten. Absolutely, yeah. It's not and wasted. And that's the great thing about it is everything we do in, in regards to deer ends up on a plate, whether it's through local butchers, restaurants throughout London and the UK, 
and even exported to other countries as well. And why is it that we import venison from New Zealand when we've got an infinite supply of venison here? Good question. I would imagine it's something to do with price. They have a lot more parks and open areas, so I think they do things in a higher volume. Ours is more expensive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you mentioned fallow. On the Ashdown Forest, we also have roe, monkjack yep. and seeker. We do, yeah. So roe deer, again, smaller numbers, but absolutely love roe deer. One of my favourite deers to watch. The roe deer you would never cull. Roe deer we no. don't cull, purely down to the fact that there aren't enough numbers of roe deer to be a threat. And what about the other two you don't need to cull? So muntjac, again, they're not on the cull programme, but they are becoming quite an invasive species. And seeker deer, we don't necessarily have a big problem with seeker deer locally here. I've got a nerdy fact, which is the signs on the road around Ashdown Forest, the red triangle with the deer in the middle, is a red deer, which we do not have on the Ashdown Forest. We don't, so. not at the minute. We, we used to many years ago. Yeah, maybe we need to reintroduce them. Yeah, but for full accuracy, it should be a fallow deer. It should be, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, Charlie, it does sound quite incredibly involved. All the preparation and then, like you say, if you're actually getting the deer out is quite an involved operation as well. I've read that hard fencing is too expensive, electric fencing is too expensive, contraception is too complicated. Why not just bring apex predators in bring back some links <laughs> i think if you were to to introduce them now it's almost a little too too late in my opinion you know you've got thousands of, of fallow running around so to bring in predators natural predators wolves and and lynx how many are you going to have to bring in to control the current population and then you've got almost another population issue because you need to introduce so many so at at this time the most effective way is to do what, what we're doing now. It is an irony, isn't it, that, that the Ashdown Forest is called Forest because it was a medieval hunting ground. And in those days, it had a 23-mile pale, which was this very expensive fence on top of a bank, which kept the deer in. And now we're going to these incredible lengths to... To, to try and get rid of some of the numbers, absolutely, yeah. It's certainly gone against what they were aiming for at the time. So there's a sign on the forest which says deer collisions this year and there's a new figure updated. It's often in the 200s. Yes, absolutely, yeah. But I've heard the happier news that since your deer culling, the numbers of deer collisions have gone down. Absolutely. So 2022, it was 182. 2006 I think was the highest spike on record which was almost 400 deer so it's a massive almost 50% decrease in, in deer vehicle collisions. And people driving should watch out particularly at dawn and dusk because that's when deer are most active. Yes absolutely if you can put your full beams on if it's safe to do so and just keep your peripheral vision very much on alert mode for deer looking to cross especially around the rut because male deer are very bold so they will just cross sporadically in front of cars on the lookout for does so yeah well thank you charlie so much i'm glad you mentioned the no rut problem. because in our dusk walk we take some volunteer youth rangers out on a search for the deer rut lovely thank you so much no charlie. problem at all thank you very much cheers
So, Tom, over to you now. That, that, that was unusual for us to do a long interview for our dawn session, and you were present throughout. How do you see the deer cull through, through the eyes of a wildlife guide? Well, it was really reassuring to meet Charlie and hear more about how he goes about his work with such professionalism. And I recognise the benefit that that brings to wildlife, particularly for things like dormice, which struggle in a woodland whose understory has been stripped away by the browsing of the deer. And I'm also partial to locally shot venison, which I think is a healthy, sustainable, locally sourced meat. And I've met vegans who are happy to break their dietary rules for a bit of local wild shot venison because they understand the benefits of a well-managed deer population. Tom and I are now at Pooh Sticks Bridge and we're about to hear from some Winnie the Pooh enthusiasts who've been visiting the forest and we're just going to give a bit of background to Winnie the Pooh and Ashdown Forest. Well, the Ashdown Forest is the 100 acre wood where Pooh's adventures with Christopher Robin and their friends takes place. And A.A. Milne wrote the books in the 1920s while he was living on the edge of the forest. They became a sensation and there's now a memorial on the forest to both Milne and the illustrator of the books, E. H. Shepherd. In 1961, ten years after A.A. Milne died, Disney bought the rights to the books and has since produced 16 feature films as well as several TV series. So far, they've made about $250 billion from the films and nearly $50 billion from merchandise. And well-known spots from the stories are still here to be found. The Heffalump Trap, Rouge Sandy Pit, The Enchanted Place... My dad was obsessed and is obsessed with Winnie the Pooh. He read them in his 20s, like going into the office. I'm sure he probably got a bit of like funny looks on the tube. I think it has got some good messages in there about playing with your friends in nature and having fun outside. I think it's about the joy of imagination and always kind of keeping that with you, even into adulthood, that you can find such magical things in nature and in the life around you. Growing up, we were a very child literature loving household. And now being a primary school teacher, it's sort of carried on. It seems all the children know exactly who he is. So it's quite good to use him as an example of positivity. And when I work with the children and do it with the teachers as well, they love it. I think one of the best sayings, you know, with Piglet walking away with Pooh, and Pooh says to Piglet, What day is it? And he said, it's today. <laughs> and Pooh says, that's my favourite day. And I love that. There's a message to us all, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they're just legendary. He was a real wordsmith. There's a great one I use with the kids with special educational need. It's, I think Christopher Robin says to Pooh, some days it just really doesn't matter how you spell the word Tuesday. <laughs> and they love it because it's like, oh, yeah, no, I can't spell either. <laughs> I know him from the books. I didn't see the film yet, though. He is so cuddly, and I got Tigger as a stuffy, and he is nice to be a friend with him. Mum read me the books, and I got a little Winnie the Pooh teddy bear. Just such a lovable character. Like, yeah. everyone can connect with one different 
creature like the person in the stories yeah. like even if you're not like a Winnie the Pooh person you might be a Tigger yeah and it's only growing up I've realized that like Eeyore represents depression you've got Tigger with ADHD Piglet and his anxiety and Rabbit and OCD like all of those as a child I'd have never recognized and even my parents I don't think they would have realized the influence that they would have had on like introducing me to all these different aspects of mental health. We've just been playing poo sticks with our 18 month old Benjamin and he really really enjoyed it. You go and stand on a bridge with a river underneath and you drop your poo sticks one side and then you watch them go under the bridge and you run to the other side and then see who comes out first. <laughs> Benjamin won. You came first, didn't you? So my mum used to read them all to me when we were little. Always the books, and then we watched all the films. I've really enjoyed the books. I quite like Winnie the Pooh because he's a very relatable character in the way that he can get muddled up, but he always enjoys just, you know, flow, like flowing on the river of life, basically, just coming along and having a good time. Reading the books, of course, and also just living near the Ashdown Forest is, like, kind of magical. I love building dens and all that, and I don't think I'll ever grow out of that. Like the whole, the whole, the whole law of Winnie the Pooh is great. It's like being out in the woods, being slightly philosophical, but also a bit silly. A word of explanation before our next interview. A. A. Milne based his character Christopher Robin on his own son Christopher, and the books were so successful that as he was growing up in the 1920s and early 30s, Christopher Milne became one of the most famous children in the world. He received an immense amount of attention from journalists, and when he went to boarding school, this fame led to relentless bullying. So Christopher began to resent being in the spotlight, and that his father had used his own son's name in the poems and stories. So I'm in Anne Thwaites flat in London and she is showing me her first edition of Winnie the Pooh. And Anne is the leading expert on A.A. Milne, the author of the Winnie the Pooh stories. And she actually won the Whitbread Biography of the Year for her 486-page <laughs> biography of A.A. Milne. And she more recently wrote Goodbye Christopher Robin, the story behind the film which came out in 2017 for which she was a consultant. So our USP on the Ashdown Forest podcast is that we record everything outdoors but we've had one exception already when it was pouring with rain and today our exception is the fact that Anne was born in 1932 and doesn't want to spend too long on a, a cold bench <laughs> of the Ashdown Forest. <laughs> So we thought it'd be cosier to be in your house here. So thank you so much for having me here. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, first of all, there is your first edition. Can you tell me how you came upon that? Well, my father gave my mother Winnie the Pooh when it came out in 1926, which was six years before I was born. And that's one of the important things that people sometimes don't realise, that it appealed to adults as well as to children. It was an instant bestseller as a result of when we were very young, the book of poems that preceded it. <laughs> and it's been in the family ever since. It's now extremely battered. I see that one of my daughters has written her name rather badly in it. 
and that's uh, it's a great treasure. So, did you enjoy the books as a child? Oh, absolutely, we loved them. And my my brother had a had a kanga with a room. But you read them to your children as yes, well? Yes, yes, and, uh, and they read them to theirs and so on. They've always been a very large part of our lives. We've had lots of walks on Ashdown Forest and we've always loved it. Are you surprised that their appeal has endured and that they are still some of the best-loved characters in children's literature? Yeah. No, I'm not surprised, but what saddens me and really does sadden me, is that so many children don't have the chance of reading the books. They're not in schools, on the whole. I mean, I've been a school governor, and I've done a lot of writers and school stuff and so on, and I'm always saddened that their idea of Winnie the Pooh is from the Disney films. Disney, of course, has done a huge amount to make Winnie the Pooh as famous as he is. No question about that. But it will be very, very sad if the books get overshadowed. Yeah. Well, you will be heartened to hear yeah. that when I interviewed several people near Pooh Bridge and near the memorial, that most people said they came to Winnie the Pooh through the books, not the films. Good, good, yes. And, the, and they came to Ashton Forest because of the books. Yes. Yeah. So what is it that drew you to write a biography of A.A. I had no idea that I would. In fact, I thought you couldn't because I had read... Christopher Milne's book in which he actually says he didn't want a biography of his father. But after I published my biography of Edmund Goss, he said yes. I had some suitability in Christopher's mind. Um, he, he didn't want one that concentrated on Winnie the Pooh. He didn't want someone who was a, a fanatic of Winnie the Pooh. He wanted someone who was going to look at the whole life. So in your biography, you, you go into all the detail of, of how A.A. Milne was so much more than the author of the Winnie the Pooh books, Indeed. and they overshadowed what he really wanted to be known mm. for, which was his plays, mm. and he was a contributor to Punch, he was a humorist, mm. and he actually went to live on the Ashdown Forest to write about pacifism, and then came Winnie the Pooh. So can you tell us a bit more about that? What really started him writing children's books was a wet holiday in Wales when it was a house party and it had a letter asking him to write a children's poem. He'd never written anything for children before. He actually said, I thought about it and then I thought, I wonder what I would write if I did write a children's poem. And then he sat down and wrote one. And it was The Dormouse and the Doctor, one of my favourite poems, actually. And after that, he thought, well, why not try a few more, and partly for an excuse to get away from the other people. And I think he was always happiest when he was writing. That was the beginning of When We Were Very Young, which was his first children's book. Pooh made a very, very small appearance in, in that. It was illustrated by E.H. Shepherd. That's really... I, Shepherd must be mentioned straight away because he's obviously an extremely important part of the books. Though he actually only went to Ashton Forest once, even though the illustrations, he obviously was very busy that day sketching and he somehow has managed to preserve what still exists. It totally captures yeah, the, the spirit yeah, of the forest. Absolutely, absolutely. And the yeah. memorial is to both of them. The memorial and the Ashton Forest absolutely. is very much to A.A. Yeah. Milne and E.H. Yeah. E. Shepherd. He, he did say once, you know, 
everyone wants immortality in some sense. And he did get immortality, but not for what he really wanted. And, and many people describe the Winnie the Pooh books as whimsical. And, and he yeah. said it was a loathsome adjective. Yeah. And, and to be accused of whimsy was yeah. like a fate yeah. worse than yeah. death. Yes, yes. But they are whimsical. Well, no, I wouldn't be clever, funny, yeah, witty. Anyway, he hated it, yes, because he actually said once, after he'd written them and was trying to write other things and go on writing his plays, which had been tremendously successful, unusually successful, and he didn't want the children's books to be the thing he was remembered by. So what do you think, ultimately, having researched so much, was Christopher Milne, Christopher Robbins relationship with Winnie the Pooh in the books? As a child, he rather liked being famous. He admitted that. And it was only much, much later that he came to resent them that he realised how difficult it would be for him to get away from them. He actually escaped because of the war. He got right away. And actually, I met someone once who had been in the army with him and had no idea that Christopher Milne was Christopher Robin. That was what made it possible for him to escape and have a completely different life of his own. And sadly, Christopher had very little contact with his parents after the war, and indeed after his father's death, he didn't see his mother again. Because of wanting to shake off the Winnie the Pooh even then? Yeah. It was a sort of defence mechanism, I think, but it was very harsh. And in the end, he set up his own bookshop in Dartmouth, in Devon. That's right. Which ironically sold Winnie the Pooh books, so he had to face his demons again to some extent. He would sign copies for his child customers if uh, the parent was prepared to donate £10 to his charity. Well, and on that subject, he, he was very reluctant to accept any royalties yeah. from Winnie the Pooh, and he only accepted royalties for his daughter who had cerebral palsy for her her medical treatment, but otherwise he touched none of the fortune. And you met him more than once while you were researching your biography of his father. I I did. I spent a whole day with him in Dartmouth. He wanted to share with me anything that he had, but in fact turned out that he had very, very little. Daphne, Christopher's mother, sold everything to Texas, Mm -hmm. you see. All the family memorabilia his father's childhood letters, everything, the University of Texas. Not that she needed the money, she had stacks of money, but she did want it to be preserved, and that was a good thing to do. And this was at a time when English universities were not particularly interested in writers' papers. It seems that a lot of the memorabilia is now in in America Mm. because Mm. all the toys Mm. are in the New York Public Library, and I've read that still 750,000 people visit them a year. How interesting, yes. But uh, they do look very uh, battered and and real. And they got there because Milne had lent them to a, a touring exhibition and somehow they stayed there. And, of course, now Disney makes $2 billion a year through Pooh merchandise. Good heavens. Certainly, it is a worldwide phenomenon, and that's why you get so many Japanese, particularly, visitors on Ashdown Forest. The Pooh books have been translated into 53 different languages, something like that. And how did the goodbye 
Christopher Robin film come about, which you were a consultant for? It was very, very slow. It was seven years, I think, from when I was first sent a script by the BBC, actually, and it was hopeless. But I said, there's a, there's a film struggling to get out, in fact. It hadn't got the right atmosphere or feeling at all. I had a huge amount to do with it. I spent years of my life reading scripts, so it seems now, looking back. And I was really pleased to be consulted, even about the child who was going to play Christopher Robin. I was sent three, four, five videos of different children reading. I chose this boy, Will Tilston, and the producer and the director said, oh, good, that's the one we think, too. <laughs> he, he, he is yes, pitch perfect. Absolutely marvellous, yes. And, and I think the boy who plays Christopher Robin, slightly older, is pitch perfect yes, as well. Yes, very good, very good. So how did you feel about the film in the end? Oh, no, I, I loved it. I was so relieved <laughs> that it turned out so well, and I enormously enjoyed the actual filming. I have very happy memories and make a brief appearance in the, the pageant scene when I'm sitting on the dais with Margot Robbie and Donald Gleeson. I think I'm pretending to be a, the mayoress or something. It says pageant dignitary in the credits. Oh, really? Anthwaite yeah. pageant dignitary. <laughs> and then a year later, Disney comes out with Christopher Robin starring... Oh, don't even talk about that. Starring you and McGregor and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they could not be two more different films. But, yeah. but I think, to, to a large extent, Goodbye Christopher Robin does pop people's balloons about the idyll of growing up as the son of A.A. Milne. You think people wouldn't have imagined that? I think people think it must be lovely to grow up with a father who has yeah. such a great imagination. Yes. And Daphne, Christopher Milne's mother, is portrayed as a socialite by Margot Robbie currently of Barbie fame. <laughs> In the film, Margot Robbie very vividly shows that she was not she was not their sort of person. I mean, it's a wonder that the marriage survived, really. <laughs> the reason they married, Milner always said, was that she laughed at his jokes. <laughs> it's a good reason. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that makes Christopher Robin's childhood so happy, one of the things that did, was his relationship with his nanny who was brilliantly played in the film. That is absolutely true. He was devoted to her and remained so until she died. There's no doubt that it, it compensated, if you like, for any deficiencies. He had a happy childhood. And what he wanted was a happy life later and not to be constantly reminded of the books. And so having met Christopher Milne and so deeply researched A.A. Milne, how alike do you think they were? I think they were very alike. And one of the main things is they're both such extremely good writers. And he wrote some very good books himself, including an account of his childhood in Enchanted Places, which is a wonderful tribute both to the relationship with his father and to Ashdown Forest, of course. You see, what's so lovely is that they're both funny and serious. I really like that. I like people who are funny and serious. And I think that's true of both of them. Well, in the end, Christopher Milne wrote you the most admiring letter. Could, could you read an extract of the letter, or maybe even all of it? Well, you can imagine what pleasure this gave me and why I've still got it in my hand. I will read it, but it, it seems a little bit like boasting. Dear Anne, 
I have finished it. The obvious epithet for it is monumental. I was never expecting anything so massive, but a less obvious epithet would be magnetic, for I found myself quite unable to walk past it without being deflected from what I was about to do and sitting down with it to read another two or three pages. If I had any doubts and reluctances at the beginning, they've all been swept away and I'm left with nothing but admiration and happiness. There were no great surprises, thank goodness, but there was much I hadn't known. The ups and the downs were a good deal steeper than I had supposed. Hmm. Thank you, Anne. And I did read in your book that he read something that you had found that his father had written about how much he adored him, Mm. which is something his Mm. father possibly didn't say Mm. in person, but he read it through your Mm. book. Mm. Yes, it's lovely that he says that he discovered things that he hadn't known. Um, and that is the point of our biography. Nobody knows anyone as well as biographer does. <laughs> I mean, how can they? Well, Anne, thank you so much for all your thoughts about this. One of the things we do at the end of, of most interviews is we hand over to nature, the sounds of nature. So I ask each of my interviewees if there's a wildlife sound, perhaps one that you'd hear on the Ashdown Forest, but not necessarily that you love to hear. How interesting. What sound is my... We used to hear a lot of woodpeckers. Do you have... Yes, we certainly do. do. Yes. And woodpeckers and, on the Amsterdam Forest. And they're thriving. I'm, I hear them often enough. Yes. I, lo- I love woodpeckers. Um, I mean, I, I love robins too. There's Christopher Robin. How strange. You don't often think of robins in connection with Christopher Robin, but I'm extremely fond of robins. That would be very appropriate to have... The sound of a woodpecker followed by a robin. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. crisp autumn night, the stars are just coming out and we are on the edge of the Ashdown Forest with two 14-year-old guys from the Ashdown Forest Young Rangers group and we're out here at dusk trying to tune in to the fallow deer rut. So we are going to see if we can observe some behaviour without disturbing them, that's why I'm talking quietly, with the use of my thermal imaging camera.
So before we go down and see if we can find any of the deer rutting, I'd just like to introduce our two Ashdown young rangers, who are Sam and Xavier. And can you tell me what your highlight so far has been about being a young ranger? Yeah, I like meeting up monthly to clear some of the silver birch so that the heathland doesn't turn into woodland. That was Sam. And this is Xavier. Yeah, I really enjoyed a sundew survey that we did. They're really interesting. They grow in sort of wet patches and they've got sticky ends which they can trap flies for food in. I'll just check with Lisa, who's your leader, Lisa Stevens. Were you in the patch where Charles Darwin was? Yeah, we were doing a survey in Broadstone Bog, which I believe is where Charles Darwin collected, or certainly nearby, some of the sundews that he took back to his house and did various experiments on and eventually wrote a book all about them. Great, so let's go down and see if we can find the deer. This is a time of year when uh, the bucks are at their finest. Their antlers are clear of velvet and sort of fresh and battle ready. Their necks swell up and their Adam's apple swell up. They're, they're kind of infused all the way through with testosterone and what we're going to try and hear tonight if we're lucky is the sound that they make with these big thick necks of this sort of belching noise this deep kind of <coughs> like that and if you hear that sound that's the sound of a male fallow deer a fallow buck setting out his credentials for the does who will hopefully be gathering around This is a buck, actually. I can just about make out his handlers. Okay, we'll stay here and stay quiet. What could you see, Xavier and Sam? I could see his handlers. There was a toe in front, and then he came out from behind the bush. And he keeps stopping to sniff the ground as well. He's definitely following the scent of the one that we just saw moving off. Another buck just started grunting, and this one stopped out. Listen. I can hear it, but it's so faint. What will happen is the young bucks, the young pretenders on the outside, will have a chance to mate while the big guys are just beating the ding-dongs out of each other. Should we try some fake grunting and see if we get an answer? You know best if it's the moment. <laughs> We'll give it a go. Did they all run away? Yeah. Did they? Did they all run away? They're heading into the woods by looks of it. In response to that sound? I think so. <laughs> oh lordy. <laughs> okay, that was definitely not the desired effect. It's a bit of a naive question, but would the does ever approach the bucks in enthusiasm? Or are they um, very docile? Ah, uh, good pun. No, no, no. They... Oh, it's a badger. See the badger? He's running out into the field here. Yeah, yeah. we can. It started running up past the main group of deer. How's it showing up in the thermal imaging camera? Well, it's really sort of bright white compared to the rest of the field. Oh, just... there he is. Is that him there? Yeah. He's going at quite a pace. Yeah, seems to be running quite close to us. Yeah. It has this kind of slightly looping, arching run, which 
shows the similarity between it and otters, which they belong to the same family. There it goes. So, Tom, you were going to say, did the does ever go towards the buck in yep. search of yep. procreation? Absolutely. When a buck's putting on a big show and the does are sort of peripheral looking on and then when they like the look of one, then they'll trot in past it and all of a sudden, you know, the game is on. You see that pale patch showing up on the ground there? I think we need to go and have a look at that because I suspect that might be where a buck has been scraping the ground, possibly lying down, but also probably urinating over there. So we might have to go and sniff that <laughs> and work out if that is exactly what has been going on there. Uh, I think we promised you some funky smells end of the last episode and we might just have happened across some here now. I'm getting something slightly goaty. Any advances on goaty? Sort of like a really pungy, musky urine sort of smell. Yeah, yeah it's quite earthy, quite like a chicken smell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm getting a bit of chicken as well. All of that heady cocktail of scent is irresistible to the fallow does. Even the chicken? A little bit of chicken, I know what you're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm getting that too. And that is the smell of the next generation assured. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting a bit chilly out here now. We've had some nice views through the thermal imaging camera of some herds of does. We counted up to 13 in one herd. One buck that came out of the woods picked up the scent of a doe and then headed off. But I think that's about the best of the action that we're going to get tonight. So Sam and Xavier, what did you get out of tonight? I really enjoyed watching the badger run across the field. That was the highlight. We were here yeah. for deer, but it was the badger that trumped everything. The badger was cool. Its run was so funny. Yeah, I really enjoyed seeing all the deer. It's really interesting to see like how many there are that come out in the night. Yeah, also, it was very interesting. Have you, had you ever heard a grunting fallow buck before? No, never. No. So should we round off with one last grunt from you? <coughs> and I think what we'll do is also play a recording of a full-on deer rut to not disappoint loyal <laughs> listeners. <laughs> That's it for this year's Ashdown Forest podcasts. And once again, thank you so much to our funders over this year. The Ashdown Forest Foundation, the Friends of Ashdown Forest, and a keen cyclist and a wildlife enthusiast. And also a big thanks to the team at the Ashdown Forest Centre for all their support and advice this year. We haven't yet secured funding to continue for 2024. So if you have any leads, please get in touch at our email address, ashdownpodcast at gmail.com. That's ashdownpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. So goodbye until next year. Goodbye for now. Goodbye.